Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. This week, yes, I'm afraid, another episode about the extraordinary developments in the Catholic Church. And I know that non-Catholic listeners will be wondering when I'll change the subject, and I can promise you it'll be in the very next episode, but I have been deluged, really, with requests for an episode about yet another set of restrictions on the celebration of the Latin Mass worldwide by a Vatican which seems completely obsessed with persecuting traditionalists. There's a lot happening in Rome at the moment, and none of it is good. I won't be talking about it in this episode, but I would urge everyone, not just Catholics, to look very carefully at the sex scandal surrounding the figure of Father Marco Rupnik, the Jesuit mosaic artist, a world-famous figure, greatly patronised and favoured by the current pontificate, and the explosive and grotesque allegations that he is facing. How that drama plays out, I think, will have an effect on the future of this pontificate. And that, in turn, I think, may affect what happens to the Church's campaign against the Latin Mass. Anyway, I've just been talking to the moral theologian Father Alexander Lucy Smith, who's also a parish priest of Arundel and Brighton. And I think you will learn a lot from his erudite and outspoken take on the liturgy wars, the self-obsessed synod, and the general feeling of creeping chaos at the top of the world's largest Christian church. Father Alexander Lucy Smith, you have from time to time celebrate the old rite, but it's, it's not your regular thing. You're a parish priest. I have been trying to talk to priests who regularly celebrate the Latin Mass about the latest wave of restrictions on its celebration, and they won't do so because they are frightened. Now, we know that while Pope Benedict was still alive, Pope Francis essentially tore up his signature document on the reintroduction of the Latin Mass, Summorum Pontificum. And now that Benedict is dead, he seems determined to throw the remaining pieces into the shredder, so that only last week we learned that bishops cannot authorise the use of the Latin Mass, the celebration of the Latin Mass in parish churches without express permission from the Dicastery for Divine Worship, which is run by Cardinal Arthur Roach, the deeply unpopular Yorkshire Cardinal who is known for his disdain for the old rite, the priests who celebrate it and the faithful who attend it. This seems very odd in a church which is always being lectured by the Holy Father about the need for mercy, and also very odd in a church which is engaged in an exercise in synodality, which is supposed to empower local churches and local bishops. And it seems that everything is being centralised in pursuit of one of the Pope's personal agendas. And it's an agenda that seems to be driven by an intense dislike of the old liturgy and the people who go to it. Well, you've said a lot of things there, Damien, and I just want to pick up a few of them. First of all, those priests who didn't want to talk to you, maybe they're the clever ones and I'm the stupid one by agreeing to talk to you. You also said that this is the Pope's personal agenda. Now, I think we've arrived at a place in this papacy, in this reign, Pope Francis's reign. He's been on the papal throne for 10 years. He's 86. He's clearly showing his age. He's not particularly well for a man of 86. He's in a wheelchair. This reminds me very much of the closing years of the pontificate of John Paul II. John Paul II famously refused to retire. Benedict, of course, as we all know, did. 
Uh, Pope Francis has also said just recently, and very few people picked this up, that his the papacy was ad vitam, let's say, for the whole of his life. He has no intention of retiring. They picked up something else about how he had written a letter of retirement if he became unwell and so on, but he has no personal intention of retiring. But because he's impeded, I mean, he can't get around, his mobility is impeded, what I think has happened in the Vatican is what happened in the time of John Paul II. When John Paul II was very old and also physically unable to get around, the day-to-day running of the Vatican um, passed to a group of people called the Troika. There were three of them. One was Cardinal Ratzinger. Another one was Monsignor Civich, who was his secretary. And I think the third one might have been Cardinal Sodano. Now, I think what's happened now in the Vatican is that a Troika is probably making a lot of these decisions, or a group of people is making a lot of these decisions. They're probably not cardinals, though. They might well be people that the Pope has trusted for a very long time, people who are his gatekeepers, his fellow Jesuits, maybe. But one whom he clearly trusts and who's clearly got the papal ear is uh, Cardinal Roach. Now, this document that came out, Traditionis Custodes, 18 months ago, was very, very badly drafted. Now, that's not controversial, simply because it's had to be tweaked several times. First of all, there were dubia that were sent in, queries asking for clarification, and clarification came back. Then there's been this latest thing where Cardinal Roach has gone into the Pope and the Pope has said whatever he said, and it's been published. It's, um, it's some sort of canonical... Um, mechanism for giving out some sort of um, decree. And each time it's tried to shore up what Traditionis Custodis is about. But nobody's really quite sure what Traditionis Custodis is about, because on the face of it, it said the bishops are the guardians of tradition. That's the opening sentence. And it is the, to, up to the bishop to regulate the liturgical provision in his diocese. But now it's changed to, well, it's not the bishop after all. The bishop cannot dispense people to say the Tridentine Mass, let's say, in a parish church. That has to go to Rome. So you use the word centralization. Absolutely, this was an act of centralization. It wasn't intended as an act of centralization. It was intended as an act of giving the bishops more power. But now we've been told the bishops can't dispense from Traditionis Custodis. It has to go to Rome if you want dispensation. Now, for our readers, for our listeners, the key word here is dispensation. The Catholic Church has lots of laws, canon laws. And if these are not laws of God, these are laws of man. So where you can get married, where you can't get married, things like that. But you could ask for a dispensation. You can ask that the law does not apply in your particular case. You send off a letter requesting a dispensation. It comes back and you get a dispensation. It's very rare that dispensations are refused. But this is really quite astonishing that if, let's say, I, a parish priest, want to celebrate the Tridentine Mass in my church, I have to go all the way, except it wouldn't go through me, it would go through a layers and layers of bureaucracy, I have to go all the way to the Holy Father to ask for this permission, which I imagine probably wouldn't be forthcoming. The other thing is, it would take two or three years. So if I want to say Tridentine Mass next week, I wouldn't be able to because it would be, um, I'd have to wait about six months, two years for the paperwork to come through. And so essentially, it's saying no more Tridentine Masses in um, parish parish church. But, Damien, This will, there's a law of unintended consequences. And this is why I say the whole thing is very badly drafted. Because if you want to 
control, for want of a better word, the Tridentine Mass, much better to have it in the parish church where you can keep an eye on it rather than it going um, loco in somewhere else. Now, I'll give you an example. There's nothing to stop me going along the road to the Anglican vicar and saying to him, can I use your church to celebrate a Tridentine Mass? Because um, that's not a parish church, but it is a church. I could celebrate a Tridentine Mass there. In my church, every Sunday night, we have an Eastern or an Oriental Orthodox liturgy. And that's, you know, they borrow our church. I welcome them in. They are not Catholics. They don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. Um, And they, they don't acknowledge papal authority. But I say, hey, you're welcome, come in. And they come in and they celebrate their divine liturgy. And we have people coming from all over to engage that divine liturgy. My um, thing is always, let's increase footfall in this church. If a bunch of Anglicans wanted to come and celebrate in my church, I'd say yes. In Italy, where places like, um, where you've got English people living, beautiful places in Italy, they borrow Catholic churches for their Anglican liturgies. Um, Now, I find it hard to understand why you could have an Anglican liturgy in the Catholic Church or an Orthodox liturgy in the Catholic Church. You can't have a Tridentine liturgy when the Tridentine liturgy is neither heretic nor schismatic. And of course, the people who want to go to the Tridentine Mass are fervent Catholics. You talk about the law of unintended consequences, Mm. and I think the unintended consequences could actually be quite severe Mm. because there are, among Tridentine Catholics, people with some rather strange and conspiratorial views. And the great achievement, I think, of Benedict's Samoran Pontificum is that he was bringing Tridentine Catholics into the main body of the yeah. church and blurring the distinction, as, in, as indeed he called it, the, the hermeneutic of continuity between those who attend uh, Mass using one missile and Mass using another missile, both missiles being yeah. sanctioned yes. by the Holy See. The danger now, and it is a real danger, is that a whole load of traditionalists will go off and, well, either they'll join communities within the Catholic Church, which are in power to say the Latin match, which is, which is fine, or they'll join the SSPX, the Lefebvre's, which yes. I suspect is what Francis wants anyway, to drive them out completely, or they will become some sort of sedivacantists or some sort of rebels, and then you will see some really strange views and... Um, paranoid opinions creeping in, and it is already happening. In America, for example, the number of seminarians attracted to utterly bonkers and malevolent sedivacantist churches, Mm. and I'm not implying that all sedivacantists are bonkers or malevolent, Mm. but is is rising, and I know people who have been gravely damaged by these cult-like churches. But part of me thinks that Francis, who has a history as long as your arm of disliking the Tridentine Mass, aided by Roach, who was trying to circumvent Samoran Pontificum, even when Benedict introduced it, actually want to drive people away. And this, it seems to me, is an inexpressibly shocking yes. thing. Well, um, on the surface of Trident, Traditionis Custodis is the idea that people should be weaned off the Tridentine Mass onto the Novus Ordo. Now, there are two things I'd like to pick up with you here. In America, particularly in America, what will happen is people will say, we want the Tridentine Mass, we will go and buy a church, a disused chapel, of which there are rather a lot, and we will tart it up, we'll do it up, we'll make it nice, and we'll invite a priest every Sunday to say the Tridentine Mass for us. Are they allowed to do that? I, and they basically, what they'd, 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 they'd found a wildcat parish. 
Now, I'll, I don't know is the answer because I'm not a canonist, but I'll tell you what's happened in a certain place where I used to live. And there was a bunch of American Catholics who didn't like going to the parish churches. So they got together, they had their own American mass, but they used to invite a different priest every week to say the mass. And the whole parish was run by the laity. And if the priest was not really up to snuff, um, he really wasn't, you know, what they liked, they wouldn't invite him back. And they would give very generous stipends. They were Americans, therefore they were rich. And so priests were queuing up to say mass for these people because you got, you know, 500 quid a, uh, for a Sunday mass. And therefore it was effectively a parish, a Christian community, a Catholic community, which was run entirely by the laity and the priest was just invited in. Now that sort of model, they were liberal Catholics, that sort of model would work extremely well for traditional Catholics in America. And there's nothing, it might be banned by canon law, I'm not sure, but there's nothing that the hierarchy could do to stop it. That's the, so you've got the possibility of wildcat parishes. Well, you mean you're short, short calling the police, you mean? No, they can't. I mean, there's a, there's a Tridentai mass going on at East 46th Street. Well, uh, that raises uh, the possibility. Yeah. That raises the possibility, and I often think of this, of a network of mm. underground Tridentai masses yeah. being said as if in Elizabethan England. Yes. And I think it very, very sad yeah. Yeah. that priests who are in communion with mm. the Holy See might be saying the mass afraid of being caught That's by awesome. roaches inquisitors. Yes. Now, the second point you raised, the Traditionis Custodis makes a declaration, which is not backed up by any argument, which is palpably misleading. It says that the Mass of Vatican II is the only Mass of the Roman Rite. It's the only expression of the Roman Rite. It's very worrying for those who follow other Catholic rites, such as the... Um, the Syrians and the the Maronites and the Byzantines and the Mozarabic Rite and of course the the Rite from uh, Milan the Ambrosian Rite and so on and there's a Dominican Rite well. right. surely the Dominican Rite is a Roman Rite yes it, it is yeah. it's an expression of the Roman Rite and of course there is in this country the wonderful and beautiful ordinariat use I couldn't it's called... I couldn't agree more and I think what a shame mm. that the the ordinariat is not working harder I love yes. them but I wish they would work harder but to promote that they call it a issue. use and not a right I mean again maybe that's hesitating but you see the point of the matter is we believe or we used to believe, and I still believe, in unity, in but not uniformity. We believe in unity and diversity. This is one way where we Catholics are really behind diversity. There are 28 Catholic churches. There are 28 ways of going to Mass. When I was in uh, Rome, I quite often used to go to the Armenian Mass, and that was extremely beautiful. And I had a fully Catholic experience at the Armenian Mass. I knew the Armenian Mass was a full expression of Catholicism. Now, the other thing is this. We had for many years the Tridentine Mass, the Tridentine Mass, which was formalized by the Council of Trent. And don't forget, when Edmund Campion came to England and he said, he took out this small book and he said, I'm now going to say Mass. And they said, well, hang on a sec. You can't do that. And he said, yes, I can. This is the Council of Trent's just, just produced this book and you'll find out it's great. And because they were used to the Sarum rites, weren't they? And other rites. The Tridentine Mass ensured the survival of the church. One man, one book, very little equipment. And it's all in one book, not in lectionaries and this and the other stuff. Now, then came the Mass of Vatican II, the Novus Ordo, as it's called. And that is with a huge missal and with a three-volume lectionary attached to it and so on. 
Now, there's no reason why we should say that the novice ordo is the liturgy forever. The novice ordo can be updated, it can be changed, it can be modified. And there may come another council, Vatican III or Lateran VI or something like that, or goodness gracious, even Trent II, and they may decide we've decided to reform the Mass. We, and I don't mean reform as in the way the Protestants use the word reform. I mean reform. We're going to make a few changes. To the and I think, this is one of the, I think this is one of the ambitions of Pope Benedict. In mm. the long term, yeah. he wanted to see a convergence of yes. the two rights. Yes. Now, that's not happening at the moment. No. Doesn't it strike you as extraordinary hypocrisy that this persecution, and I think it is persecution, and I think it actually is a restriction of people's freedom of religious liberty mm. is happening at a time when the church is engaged in this extraordinary, expensive, badly attended, badly organised, undemocratic synod on synodality. Yes, um, it is extraordinary because um, I don't really understand what the synod on synodality is all about. Um, I note that just recently four ladies, and this shouldn't have happened because they're the ones who are supposed to be included in these processes, left the synodal vague, the synodal way in Germany. They walked out and they said, this is not Catholic. And there's been a lot of rumpus in the synodal way in Germany. Now, uh, because the people who are holding to the Catholic Church, the Catholic faith as it's been received for centuries, are rightly objecting to things like the ordination of women being discussed and so on, particularly as the question of the ordination of women was definitively settled by Saint John Paul II. Now, I think Traditionis Custodis, one of the reasons why it was um, a rather badly drafted document is because it was a document drafted I'm guessing here, not for the universal church, but particularly for the situation in America. And it's, 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 it's America that they're obsessed with. And it's in America where the cultural war between Biden and Trump continues to rage, where the liturgical war is raging. And of course, it's in America where you have very well attended Tridentine masses with lots of young families and lots of young people and so on. Now, you would have thought, and our listeners, I'm sure, are all thinking this, that if you were going to have a showdown about a Tridentine mass, you'd have it in France, because France was the traditional battleground for people wanting to keep the Tridentine mass and so on. England never was, because in England we had always permission to have... But the weren't they all Lefebvreists? Well, they became Lefebvreists. Um, and um, as a matter of fact, what happened is because it was the way it panned out in France is that a whole load of people in France who were Catholics became Lefebvreists. Now, we know that Lefebvre was excommunicated, but it's always been hazy from a canonical point of view where the people who attend the Lefebvreist masses are excommunicated as well. The answer is probably not. Um, some people would say very, very emphatically, absolutely not. Recently, about three or four years ago, the Pope actually recognised Lefebvreist marriages as Catholic marriages. In other words, he gave the Missio Canonica, the Pope's permission or the Church's permission, to marry people to these priests who had not been ordained in a proper way because they didn't have demissorial letters when they were ordained. They didn't receive the Missio Canonica when they were Ordained. Now, the Missio Canonica is basically the legal authority to act as a Catholic priest. They have the moral authority to act as a Catholic priest, they're proper Catholic priests, but they don't have the Pope's permission to function or the bishop's permission to function. 
What really comes down to it here is the following, and our friends who write The Pillar would know all about this. Vatican II set out the following, that the bishop was the representative or the, the focal point of the local church in his diocese. The bishop was not a papal legate. And the bishops altogether, in union with the pope, were the supreme teaching authority in the church. Now we're going back to what we had before Vatican II, where basically the bishop is just the pope's legate. That's confusing. And it's not going down very well with the bishops. I can think of lots of bishops throughout the world who are not enthusiastic for the Tridentine Rite, who probably weren't particularly enthusiastic about Samorum Pontificum, but nonetheless went along with it, who also dislike Traditionis Custodis because they see their own authority being chipped away and they don't like being told what to do. And they feel that uh, all this talk of synod is rather meaningless at a time when their own powers are very clearly being restricted. I think no one in middle management of the church, i.e. the bishops, wants yet another thing that they have to do. Just like me, every time I open the post and I get something saying, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do the other, I groan because it's yet another thing that I have to do, you know, a bit of administration. So this has created a whole level, stratum of, of, of administration. In other words, the bishop now has to police the Tridentine Mass in his diocese. But in addition, I think many bishops see that this is a question of natural justice, mm-hmm. that a group of faithful Catholics, maybe they're not their type of Catholics, yeah. maybe with some views that they disapprove, but nonetheless faithful observant Catholics are essentially being persecuted. And it's wrong, Alex. It's wrong, isn't it? Don't you agree? um, Well, I would have to say one thing that I've noticed that I'm very distressed about is back in the day, if you remember some, I'm a moral theologian, um, back in the day, several moral theologians would complain about how the laity were encouraged to delate to Rome various moral theologians who weren't teaching what the church teaches. Now, delation is an old Latin word. It means to be an informer. Now, there seems to be a move among some people to delate their parish priests to Rome for not um, carrying out traditionis custodis to the letter. I, Whatever I that well is. I well believe it. Whatever very, that, very I mean, creepy people. Yeah. Um, I've been threatened. Have you been threatened? I've been threatened with delation, yeah. For what? It wasn't clear. But, it wasn't clear. Um, I was told, I'm going to delate you. And I said, what about? And I said, if you don't know, um, you know, that's your problem. Well, this is very, Apparently, this is very, very sinister. Worrying. It is sinister, But doesn't yeah. it make you think... I mean, it's it's, we, I've got enough to worry about. It's I? almost Stalinist or perhaps Stasi-like, don't you think, Father? Um, it's um, a Damien. <laughs> Thank you for holding up that delicious hoop. But I will decline to jump through it. Maybe it's not Stalinist... But, the, but, you know, the delations of the 1980s, which went into Cardinal Ratzinger's office, were a lot of liberal Catholics were very upset about this. It's delation. funny that you won't jump through that particular hoop. Yeah. Let me tell you, plenty of priests are jumping through yeah. that particular hoop but at the, the moment because the messages I'm receiving from priests yeah. who do not say the old yeah, right well, yeah, are I mean, I haven't absolutely that, incandescent. Yeah. They're yeah. incandescently angry. But the... the, the the, the boot is now on the other foot. I mean, in the good old days, the liberals were always complaining that they were going to be delated or were delated. Now it's priests who are perhaps on the other end of the spectrum who are maybe going to be delated. 
But the, the thing is, of course, back in the 1980s, people maybe did delate people to Rome, but hardly anybody was crushed by the holy office of Cardinal Ratzinger. I can only think of about two people, three, who had their license as Catholic theologians withdrawn. In other words, they could carry on teaching theology to their heart's content, but they couldn't call themselves Catholic theologians. Charlie Curran was one, Leonardo Boff Hans was Kuhn. another, and Hans Kuhn was a third. I think those are the only three. Mm. Oh, yes, there was also a Jesuit from India, I think. But how did we get here? I mean, if you go back 15 years, nobody would have believed that the Catholic Church would be turning into a sort of incompetent police state, at least insofar as liturgical matters are concerned, whereas on major matters of moral theology, running around like a headless chicken. Why, let me just put it this way, and I think you've got a good, there's a point that I'd like to make that comes from what you've said, and that is the Church is looking inward on this one. We are looking at minutiae, which most of the people listening to this podcast wouldn't even understand. They're saying, well, some well, people well, want I to think go... our, our listeners will oh, understand, right, okay. but I don't think... They, you but know, the think general the public would say, well, if they wanted to go to Mass in Latin, what's the problem? But the, the real problem is we've got to look at the challenges we face, and we're not concentrating on those, we're looking inward. Synod on synodality is about the internal life of the church. But what about, why don't we have a, you know, evangelization? What are we doing to win people back to membership of the church in the first place? What about catechesis? What are we doing to ensure that people know their faith? And also, what are we doing in the single biggest catastrophe which is facing us is the apostasy of Latin America. When uh, Cardinal Maridiaga, who is, of course, as you know, much respected, became <laughs> Cardinal of yes. Tegucigalpa, 80% of the population of Honduras was Catholic. Now, he's just retired 15 years later, something like 30% or 25%. Now, of course, these figures, how they count them, I don't know. But there's no question whatsoever that in certain parts of Latin America, the Catholic Church is in free fall. And it's also in free fall in, in Europe. Yes. And it's heading towards free fall in, in this country as well. Oh, I mean, we're down to something like 300,000 people going, going to Mass every Sunday, which would have been inconceivable even a decade ago. Is it as many as that? It, it, uh, according to some estimates, of course, you, can't, you can never get the truth out of the diocese mm. as to how many people actually go. But my main point is this, which is that if you are looking for places that evangelise people, places that attract converts and young Catholics, then you look at the very communities that are being persecuted by the Holy See at the moment. The Latin mass communities are, in a small way, thriving. Thriving these days means actually growing, which is an yeah. extraordinary thing to be growing in any shape or form. And if you look at the demographic, if you look at photographs or videos of Latin mass ceremonies, the first thing you notice is that not just the lay people, but the priests are significantly younger by about you know, 20 years than your average suburban parish. Yeah. And they are the people who are being crushed like beetles at the moment by the Holy See. This is part of a conversation, part of a process which started in the early 60s, late 50s even, i.e. before you and I were born. And how it pans out, how it ends up, is going to be decided maybe after you and I are long dead. Yeah, but meanwhile, how much damage is going, to be, is going to be done during this pontificate? Because so much damage will have to be undone, as somebody quite influential in the church was telling me not long ago, 
when the next Pope takes over. Whoever it is, even if he's a liberal, so much damage will have to be done. Well, whoever's running the Vatican right now is... Well, I don't think it's probably accurate to say who's running the Vatican. The Vatican is is rival fiefdoms, and they're largely working, I would imagine, against each other. That's the impression we get, isn't it? There isn't a, a unified policy coming out of the Vatican. We are living in very difficult times, and it's easy to give up hope, but we must keep on praying. And we must, you know, I think um, I'd love to have a synod on prayer, um, but we don't need a synod on prayer. It's like having a synod on swimming. Just go and pray. And I think that's what we need to do. Pray, pray. And when you stop praying, start again. Pray, pray. Pray above all to the great saints. You know, John Paul II, St. Rita of Kasha, the blessed Carlo Acutis. These are the people who are going to get us out of this mess. And above all, Padre Pio. I think we've, we're living in a very confusing time. Many of us are perplexed. We're perplexed with good reasons. Pope Benedict's motu proprio came out, allowing the Tridentine Mass, and then an attempt was made to squeeze the toothpaste back into the tube, um, something we've always been told in the past cannot be done. Trying to undo what Pope Benedict did won't work in the end. It'll take time for people to realise it's not going to work, and we will all move on to something else. I think what the Church is going to look like in 30 years' time 40 years' time is going to be very different to what it looks like today. And I think in 40 years' time, roughly, all of this will have been settled. The arc of progress from Vatican II will be roughly 100 years. My point is, there are now cardinals who disagree with each other oh, on yes. fundamental yes, issues of sexual morality, um, ordination, yeah. even the nature of God and the nature of divine revelation. Yes. And the disagreements seem to be truly polarising yeah. at the moment. There yeah. seems to be, you know, um, yeah. both sides, but especially the liberals, seem to be gathering a critical mass. So I wonder how, you know, how can you be so confident about what the church will look like in 50 years? Because I believe in God. And as Pope Benedict says, in the end, the Lord always wins. That was Father Alexander Lucy Smith. And may I encourage you to take a look at his gripping new substack in which he examines questions such as, I see the latest one is on the Mafia and Catholicism. He's an extremely compelling writer, having written one of the most admired novels of the 1990s, The Bishop of San Fernando, under the name David McLaurin. And I look forward to having him back on the podcast very soon. Meanwhile... I'm sorry to repeat myself, but the sense of chaos and scandal in the Vatican has never been more acute, and the case of Father Marco Rupnik may decide the future of this pontificate.